0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com.
1: The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Go Wild. Now if you haven't heard of Go Wild already, you need to check it out. You can find it on your app store, wherever you get your smartphone apps, or you can visit the desktop site at timetogowild.com. All Go Wild is, is a um, it's a social media platform designed for outdoors men and women. It has everything from camping content to hunting to fishing to wild game recipes, pretty much anything you could possibly ask for. There's content there and people putting content on Go Wild who are interested in whatever outdoor activities you're interested in. Go Wild is one of my favorite places to um, just spend time, to waste time, to spend time talking to people who are like-minded. It's a blast. You need to check it out. That's Go Wild, time to go Check it out. Welcome to the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Parker McDonald, and this is episode number 87. Today, we are continuing the Local Legends series with one of my favorite legends that we have ever talked to, probably one of my favorite podcasts uh, that we've ever recorded. His name is Bobby Worthington, and he's from Tennessee. We talk about a ton of things, so much that I can't even confine it. To one subject. It's so stinking good. You guys stay tuned. This is a great episode. This is the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show I am excited about today. And let me tell you why. We have got probably my favorite guest that we have we have ever talked to and I mean that is not at all a, uh, a dig at any of our past guests we have got some great guests on the southern ground hunting podcast but this guy is so knowledgeable within 10 minutes of talking to him you're already going to be like holy cow I feel like I've learned something there's just so much meat and potatoes in this episode That uh, I think you're going to like it. I really think you're going to like it. I want to encourage everybody listening to this to take notes. I'm I'm just giving you a warning. You're going to get to the end of these podcasts and you're going to be like, holy crap, I can't even remember everything that I learned in that because there was so much. I'm telling you, take notes. Get out a notepad, take notes on your phone, whatever you got to do. This is good stuff. I'm telling you, I... I'm immersed in this world, in the hunting world. I see stuff about it every day. I hear and listen to some of the greatest minds in the hunting industry. And this guy is in the top. This is Bobby Worthington. He's from Tennessee. And he's in the top. He's an outdoor writer. He's written for North American Whitetail. He's written his own books. I believe he said he's got six bucks that have been featured in North American Whitetail which is the most of any person, of any single person? Um, it, it's incredible, and he's also a world champion traditional archer, which is even cooler. Like it makes him so much cooler, even already than than what he uh, what 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 I told you first about all the deer that he's killed and the big bucks that he's killed. Um, just to add to that, he's a world champion archer, which is freaking awesome. He is um, I, I I really can't confine this episode into one specific subject matter. It's just that good. Um, and that's what I'm telling you. You need to take notes. Like I, I can't stress that enough. I took notes myself, but I'm going to tell you this. This is a two part podcast with Bobby. Um, uh, we, we're going to release the second part later on in the week. The, it just, there was just so much. We were an hour and a half Into the episode and really not even close to done and uh and so we decided to just make it a two-part series so make sure you tune into the next episode of southern ground hunting podcast to listen to the whole thing you're not going to be upset by listening to this one right now though i can promise you that it's actually probably a bit a little bit better for you to be able to process the things that he said um and have a few days to process it before you listen to the next part I'm just being honest with you guys, this is an incredible episode. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to remind you that we are giving away a tethered phantom saddle. All you have to do is subscribe to the Southern Ground uh, Southern Ground Hunting channel on YouTube. That's all you got to do. It's, uh, it's pretty easy, easy for you to do. Go do that. You'll be entered to win a tethered phantom. If you already own a tethered phantom and you're like, Parker, I really don't need a tethered phantom. Here's the good thing, is they can resell for a lot of money. So you can make money. We could potentially just be putting cash in your pocket if you've already got a saddle that you're happy with or if you've already got a tethered phantom. Listen, I'm just trying to help you guys out. And all you got to do is just this tiny little favor of uh, subscribing to the Southern Ground uh, hunting channel on on YouTube. That's all you got to do. So go and do that. Also, in, in that same vein, you can... You, i'm right now putting up a bunch of old videos on the new youtube channel if this is the first podcast you've listened to in a while maybe you don't know that we have moved all of our youtube content to our own channel which is the southern ground hunting channel on youtube you can find everything there i'm actually in the process right now this week i've been uploading all of uh, the videos from the 2018 season uh, which was one of the funnest seasons that i've ever had so uh you can look at it there on youtube and watch all those videos it's uh if you've seen them it, it is definitely a blast from the past if you've already watched them whenever they were first released two years ago um but i've really enjoyed re-watching them really it brought back so many memories and uh and maybe you will too i hope you do um so you can go check that check that out on youtube follow us on facebook and instagram at southern ground hunting yeah, that's I don't I don't really have any other announcements for you guys that you need to know. So this is a long a longer episode, but it is so stinking good. You're gonna get to the end of it and you're gonna be like, I feel like we just started. And you're gonna realize that you've been sitting there for almost two hours. So let's get into this episode. This is Local Legends with Bobby Worthington. All right, everybody. I am extremely excited about this episode today um in fact i i believe drew i, I don't know about you man but i think it's probably going to be one of my favorite episodes that we have ever done and that's just basing on the on the phone calls that i've had with our guest to this point
0: yeah man I, parker i'm so jacked i actually bought one of one of his books um and um have dove into that so man i'm just so excited to 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 hear from our guest today man
1: so let's get into this. Um, we have got on the phone our local legend for this week, Mister Bobby Worthington from Tennessee. Bobby, how's it going?
2: It's going great. I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to speak a little bit on on deer hunting.
1: Well, we're we're more excited. Like I I've been excited <laughs> for for a month about this since since uh, since somebody told me and recommended you to me, and I you know I did some digging and I. Uh, found some really impressive stuff and finally uh, came across your phone number through a, a mutual uh, acquaintance and gave you a call. And we talked, I don't know if you remember this, Bobby, but we talked for a good 35 minutes. And I wished that I had just pressed record on my phone after that conversation. because so I was like, that would have been an excellent podcast right there. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I know Drew is, uh, it's not every day that you run across somebody in the south who has the resume that you do and so i'm really excited to get into the the meat and potatoes of all this but if you could bobby could you just kind of give us a brief summary of yourself um where you live what you do um how you got into hunting and things like that
2: yeah i I live in a rural area in southeast tennessee uh live on the, the Cumberland Plateau and then there's the Sasquatchy Valley and then on the other side is Walden's Ridge and it forms this valley that's about 100 miles long it's pretty well known it's one of the only geographical features they say you can see from outer space my family moved into Blacksaw County in 1804 and I've got deep roots here and I've been here all my life and it's a I grew up in a very rural area and and we didn't have a whole lot and uh I got into deer hunting young in life. Uh, my dad actually told stories that they, there weren't any deer here when he was growing up. And and they were very few in this county when I was a young man and wanted to start hunting. We actually had to travel and go to some public hunting areas to be able to hunt. But the population, like most places, has been since then. But back in the 60s and 70s, when I first started hunting, we were kind of in the restoration movement. You know, you didn't, you didn't shoot you need those and you let them populate, and and the state game officials doing a good job with that, as they did in most states. And uh, we've got a good deer hunting population now. And uh, I just went through the stage like most people. At first, I just, of course, I was bow hunting. Never did carry a gun hunt deer. And I bow hunted rabbits and about everything I've done. I've done with a bow. I've always had a passion for archery. And uh, grip. shooting my first deer was a. T- First challenge, and then after that, of course, like most people, I wanted to shoot as many as legally possible. Then I wanted to shoot a buck. Then the trophy bug hit me. I got to reading North American Whitetail magazine and some other magazines in the 80s. I think I think I started reading it as soon as it came on the market, and and uh, I was just fascinated by the big deer people had and, and had in that magazine, and and uh, finally I figured it out and started killing some of your bucks, and uh, went from there. So whenever you,
1: whenever you started and, and specifically kind of talking about when you started really targeting mature deer, um, how long did it take you to, to, first off, how long did it take you to make that happen and to start really putting the pieces together? And, um, you, you, you say like, uh, uh, everybody gets lucky every once in a while, but it, it, it turns into a different thing when you really start, um, being able to consistently get on mature animals. At what age and at what point in your hunting, I guess, career did you start realizing that that was something that you wanted to do? Well,
2: killing deer, I, I was raised in the woods. I, I live further back, more in the woods than most people do when they go camping. I'm very in aware live in a rustic home and always was and uh, for entertainment at night we would uh, sit around and poke chickens on the roost. and today we'd watch them peck and scratch through the cracks of floor and we couldn't afford a TV I mean the first TV coming to my home we just got out in the woods and stayed in the woods and, uh, I learned early on how wildlife Use terrain features to travel, paths. And I was fascinated with why paths were in the place they were, and that really, when you get down to it, it's on the deep end, the trophy hunting. And when I first started reading North American Hottail Midas, and I started seeing the huge ducks that had being killed in the Midwest, particularly back then, most of them were killed in Illinois. And it just, I realized that in Tennessee, even uh, the monster bugs that most people were killed were not what I consider a trophy anymore because of the uh, 180 and 190 and 200 and steer I saw in most of So uh, I got to call in public hunting areas up in 87. I got to call in a lot of cover hunting areas up in the middle kind of talk to the managers to pinpoint places that I might go we well, need to tape them out and stuff in the travel with, i draw out the directions on now. Took off the first year and went some public ground. I had an opportunity to shoot a big deer, but it got away from me and then the second year I went to Salon Springs State Park and I killed a really big known pit that got a lot of notoriety. And a gentleman wrote an article for North American Watch magazine about that beer. It came out at night and that was the first published article I ever had, and then from then to about 2000, I killed a few respectable deer for Tennessee, Uh, traveled a few times to the Midwest, but I didn't have the finances to travel much, and I've always worked one and a lot of times two jobs, and finally in 2000, I went back to another public area, the eastern part of the state, and I killed a, a giant 180 Basic eight point score in the 180s, his main time run from 12 and a half to 15 inches, 15 and a quarter actually. Oof, and I, just, I, I never did like the story uh, that was written about the first deer, so I wrote that story myself. <laughs> and when I wrote that, I, Gordon Whittakin of North American Whitetail Magazine asked me to start writing how to stories because inside the story I injected quite a bit of how to information. And then a lot of other publications followed, and asked me to start writing. So I wrote North American Whitetail deer, deer Hunting, and several other publications, which is pretty amazing. I was pretty ignorant in school. It took me eight classes of English to get out of high school. I had to take summer school every year. I just, it was just awful. Man. I'm still not very good. I still hardly spell my last name. But I tell, I tell a story about running, and after I wrote my first book. North American Whitefell Magazine eventually asked me to write a book. It's the only book they've ever published, and I wrote it. Bowhunt, White Tail. I run into one of my English teachers. Well, she was quite elderly after I wrote that book. And uh, we got to talking about school and my problems in English, and I told her I wanted to tell her something, that I had written a book. She got all excited and wanted to know how many pages it was, what the subject was, how long it took me, and as we talked, I realized, you thought I said I had read a book. I was <laughs> 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 pretty, pretty excited about that. but That started in 2000. That, that one big deer started my writing career, and I started writing articles regular and ended up writing a book for North American Hot uh, And Then I co-authored a few, and then I wrote a, a second book, A Passionate Quest for Phantoms forest which is no longer in print i, I do have a volume two of that uh, on my computer i hope to get it printed but i'm excited about it it's probably about a, it's 100 pages from the first
1: one that's that's really cool drew actually purchased the book as he mentioned um the bow hunting bow hunting trophy whitetails um yes and uh, drew why don't you tell us your first impressions of this book i, I know it's 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 intimidating for me as a host, just hosting this podcast after, you know, learning and talking, uh, with Bobby for, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of conversations, it's intimidating for me. I'm like, man, how are we going to possibly do this, do this guy justice? Like he is, he's just an absolutely incredible guest to have. <clears throat> um, what are your first impressions of, of the book? And I, I guess just to, um, even encourage readers to go, uh, or listeners to go and, and buy this book for themselves.
0: Yeah, um, my first impression of it is when you you see it, it's, it's got a big buck there there on the front cover, and um, you open it up, and you're you're thinking you're going to jump right into um, uh, you know uh, Mr. Bobby sitting in the stand, and you don't. You actually jump into um, knowing your equipment, which I which I really appreciated because um, I know for a large portion of my at least my archery life, um, it was just hey, let me go shoot a couple days before season. And then let me hop in a stand and then I'll be good to go. And, and so, um, so you, you actually jump in and you start um, 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 reading about how to execute your shot, um, uh, learn, learning your equipment, um, really kind of archery in and out. And I really appreciate that. And then you jump into um, right after that, you, you jump into, I'm, I'm halfway through it. And so you, you, you jump into um, a heartbreaking story, Mr. Bobby, as, as I was reading the story of, of, that, that big deer that, that you miss, man, I was, it's, uh, I I get, I get upset when I miss a hundred inch buck. I couldn't imagine a, a 190, 200 inch monster, you know? Um, and, and so it's, it's a great read. It's straightforward. It's, it's, it's my type of reading. Um, anybody can benefit from this book, whether you've been hunting one day or whether you've been hunting 50 years, you can benefit from it. I encourage anybody to go pick it up.
1: That's really cool. That's that's amazing. And so, um, using that as kind of a segue into the next portion of of what I kind of want to talk about to get to know Bobby a little bit before we get into the uh, the meat and potatoes, I guess of the of the podcast. Because guys listening to this, I promise you, there are meat and potatoes in this podcast. And if you um, don't like meat and potatoes, then in, in, insert whatever it is that you like. Because this is a good, I'm telling you, it's going to be a solid episode. But I wanted to ask you about this, Bobby. I know a big part of what you do, um, and a big part of your accomplishments even has been in the archery world. Can you talk about that for just a second?
0: Oh,
2: well, yeah, I. Uh, I've always shot competition on the state level uh, since I was young and. Got into 3D archery a little bit with a compound, Uh, but uh, about five five and a half years ago, I decided to get back into traditional archery. I I stuck with it a while, not as long as Gene and Barry Wins and Roger. All they're all friends of mine, and and uh, we all shot, continued to hunt with traditional even after compounds come out. Uh, Most of us started shooting compound for a little while, went back to traditional. Then I started shooting compounds more uh and then about five and a half six years ago i got into the national and world level on traditional archers getting a recurve in the traditional ru class that's a recurve with fingers of course and and no sight. and i've done that now for well i just had a competition this past week actually the traditional world championship in clarksville tennessee But I've done that for a few years now, and and I really enjoy it. Uh, I took about a year and a half break. I got uh, Rocky Mountain spotted tick fever, and it messed with my eyes some and uh, uh, some other things, and I just uh, took a little break from it. But uh, this past weekend is the first tournament in uh, over a year, but I really enjoyed it.
1: And how did you do in the tournament this weekend?
2: I I placed first in my place.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> and, and you, you you mentioned something too that maybe there were some records or something that happened during that uh during this tournament
2: well yeah there, there was i went back and checked that's the highest score uh, shot in my class by 22 points but you know there's some there's some real good shooters out there now and and uh, there's some there's some that's hard to compete again right now yeah that, that's so cool <laughs> all the
1: that's so cool. And now, how many, how many of, uh, how many archery competitions have you have you actually won since you started doing it?
2: I think that's my sixth world championship, and I've won eighteen national championships Oof. so far.
0: Wow, man, that's incredible. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I, well, that's I, awesome.
2: I struggle
1: just to win a game of words with friends. Like I, I can imagine. <laughs>
2: can't imagine when that. That's, that. i would struggle at that or scramble either one tree, you know? <laughs> listen god made
1: some of us better at some things than others you know and he just made you a good deer hunter and a good archer that's okay that's yep. fine
2: that's
0: i think that's, uh, <laughs> I, think that's I do enjoy those two things.
1: that's so cool so so speaking of that when did you start um when did you start doing the traditional archery thing? You may have already mentioned it. I may have missed it. When did you start doing that as far as hunting with traditional archery equipment?
2: Oh. I I still hunt with it occasionally. It's it's according to the setup. I, back in 2000, uh, I missed a big deer that your partner there mentioned. It. it was a world-class deer, probably a new world record typical. It was in... <laughs> iowa oh. and i missed him with a recurve and uh up until that point i'd hunted most done most of my hunting with a recurve and i missed him and, and i put it down for a while and started shooting compounds I, listen it's it's too hard and too expensive to spend years hunting dick with deer and, and traveling out of state and everything and and to have a deer like that in bow range and you can take a compound and, and shoot his heart out and the recurve, the recurve, or not maybe not be able to. I couldn't accomplish what I was doing. Now back then, I was I wasn't at the level I am now with a recurve, and neither was the industry. Back then, we we would cut the arrows off at the back of our bow, and we would shoot split fingers, and those two things uh, is why I missed that big deer. I shoot a what you call gap shooting? some people might refer to it as split vision, but I look at the gap, the distance between the tip of my eye on the subject I want to hit, the target. And that big deer was on the trail on the funnel I intended for him to be and was coming down and I would have killed him. He was probably 20 yards away. He was a six for six. four was probably nine or 10 inches as long as big typical. His rack is, yeah, he actually looked. one of them odd things that the rack looks closer to you than the deer. It don't look like a long the deer. It's amazing, <laughs> main deer. But if he just stayed on that trail, I'd have got him. But There were some rubs that had been made the night before right under my tree, and I seen them when I climbed up. They were small, but for some reason, he wanted to come around and smell them rubs, and he ended up five yards from me. And because I had to, I didn't have full-length arrows, and I shot split fingers, I don't know if you understand this or not, but to get low enough to hit him at five yards with my arrow tail, I lost my arrow on my three field vision, and I knew I had no idea where it would end up. Uh, so my point on was the arrow cut off the back of my bow and split fingers. My point on was probably 30 or 35 yards, and anywhere inside that, it, probably 20, my arrow would have been close enough to the intended mark. I could have seen it, but when it got mm. that close, I my arrow down so far that I lost my arrow. And that's basically, that's basically why I didn't kill that deer and I took for many years. But now we shoot, most most archers shoot three fingers under and we use full-length full length arrows. So at any distance, our arrow does not leave our peripheral vision and it helps in the ankle box. Mm. Sure. I hope I ain't made that too confusing. No, but No, you no. just made my
1: stomach hurt for I, you. <laughs> That, that's rough, man. I still, I still bow
2: hunt. It's according, I I, I bow hunt with recurve some and a, and a compound some. And it's if the setup's not if I can't funnel the deer quite as tight as I want, then I will hunt with my compound. Like I said, it's it's still legal. and It's still a good sport. And to kill a 180 inch deer with a compound, still quite an accomplishment. <laughs> uh, generally, I know right where the deer is. I don't I don't bet on luck. I'm Hunt's a game of chance, but it's but I figured that I figured that out, it's no no longer a mystery to me, and I know where generally where the deer I want to be shooting will be standing when I kill it. So I set up appropriately, but sometimes there's not a tree or the terrain won't get me, won't let me get quite as close as I would want with a recurve. I I try to be ethical about it, and if the shot's pushed out there beyond 20 yards, a lot of times I'll use my compound, yeah. Uh, time i shoot a deer that i'm not after or anytime i sh- shoot a deer it's not standing where i thought he'd be standing it's just i count it as a luck deer to me but that hardly ever happens there was a deer i killed named rattlesnake that was featured in north american whitetail magazine and when the deer was three and a half years old i told my son Clay, i told him where the deer would be standing when i killed him a few years later when he got material and got to the point i wanted him and and uh, I, within six feet of where I told, where I pointed to the drown that deer was standing when I killed him four years later, when he was seven and a half years old.
0: <laughs> that, Mr. Bobby, that is that's in that's crazy. That that's well, awesome. It, that's awesome. That is so it, cool.
2: When you figure out when you when you figure it out, you know it's it's not it's not that big of a mystery no more. You know,
0: it's, man. That's oh man that, that that's so cool. That's really I just,
2: neat. I wish I could it's call you. Chance. You do everything you can to put the odds in your favor, and if it don't happen, then there's nothing more you can do to control it. And most of the time, most of the time, yeah. though, it will happen. If you get to, if you if you get to hunt enough. So it, it's, it's just a game of chance, and you finally learn. A lot of people talk about getting inside a whitetail or understanding. What they're thinking or what they're going to do next. Uh, a dog can't understand a cat, and a, a, a man can't understand a, a whitetail. We're, we're we're different creatures with different minds and different mindsets and different thinkings completely. But, but there's things you can do. To, it's just like a it's a game of chance. If you're a poker player, a professional poker player, it's no longer a mystery to them. They understand everything. But whether they win or not is part of the game. Is Controlling their opponent, which they cannot do, even though they put everything in their odds, most of the time they will. And if it's not another professional they're playing against, they don't understand how to play the game, then they will win every time.
1: Huh? That's I've never heard it put like that. I love that. But let, yeah. let's just, I'm going to take it even a step further. You said uh, a cat uh, or a dog don't understand a cat, and a man don't understand a deer. I, just take it even a step further. A man doesn't even understand a woman. So <laughs> there, there's no way we could possibly completely understand what a deer is going to do, and what you said about it being—you know—you can't control your opponent. Um, you can just do everything that you possibly can to put yourself and to play the game as well as you can. And so um, now I want to get into the meat and potatoes. I want you to talk to us, Bobby, about how you how you put yourself in those positions where you feel like you are doing everything that you can to make those things happen. Because the things that you're talking about right now are, I mean, it, it's next-level stuff, honestly. Drew, I know you probably agree. Like, like you're sitting here talking about 180-inch deer. I'm like, what about, like, 115 or 120? Like, that's <laughs> that's the level that a lot of guys are on right now where we're not even thinking yeah. about, you know, these true giants. And so, Bobby, if you could, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna let you take it away, and you tell yeah. us how you how how are you doing <clears throat> this? How are you able to understand deer on this level?
2: Well, let let me back up just a little, and and when I sum talking about the game of chance, let me elaborate a little more. Then I will get into the meat and potatoes of it. Uh, you got two professional poker players. I've never used used this analogy before. As a matter of fact, I just just now thought about it. But if you've got <laughs> Two professional poker players, and they're both professional. They understand the game completely, and then it's just you and your opponent and, and your move again, his. The same way with whitetail deer, and I'll tell you why we don't, even those that do truly understand. I, I believe 90% of the mature bucks is legally killed, by 5% of the whitetail hunters that finally understand what's important, and they may not organize their thoughts into words like in a book like I have, but they understand it. But even it's a game of chance anyway. The best I can do. I normally kill the buck I want. He's normally standing where I think he will be, and I kill him generally when I think I will. But here's one reason that that does not happen occasionally with me and and some other deer hunters that are probably a lot better now. Uh, the buck, the mature bucks, and a lot of a lot of deer hunters don't even understand this. A lot of professionals don't. I believe they have two home ranges. And you may put the odds in your tent in your favor 100% by hunting the one tree that he walks by more than any other tree in the woods when he is at home. But if he spends his rut at another home range, I don't care how skilled you are, I don't care how you are in the correct place 100% of the time to spend a month there, you will not kill him. And a lot of hunters... Begin to question their skill or begin to doubt their self, maybe after a week or a few days, and they'll get down and start walking and looking and scouting more when they were in the one tree that he walks by more than any other when he is at home. I wrote about this pretty extensively in North and Western Whitefield magazines. Men me and Gene, Angel, Barry and Roger Rother have knocked this around quite a bit, and they agree 100% with my assessment when I wrote the articles. I believe a lot of bucks have two home ranges. So if you're set up tight and you're set up on that deer and you're not seeing him, and used to, all we had to go by was sign when I first started this stuff. I didn't have trail cameras, but when his sign dried up and, and his tracks was not showing up in his strays and the and sign dried right up, I knew that deer was gone. I just, I just had a feeling then something happened later on that confirmed that. But understand that you've got to give your stand time to work. Uh, I believe a deer... When they're born, of course, most people know when they get a year, year and a half old, they they get cast out by the old doe, they dissipate, and they go find their own home range. They may travel two miles, normally five or six miles, and set up a new new home range, a new area. And I honestly believe that when those deer get four and a half or five and a half years old, uh, they will start moving back to their birth home range. It's already imprinted in their mind. They followed their mother there around in that area for a year or more, and it's already imprinted in their mind. And I believe they go back and they start spending a part of their time back and forth between the two home ranges. And and radio tracking here in the last year or two, I read some reports that show that same thing. And it may be three or four miles apart. So. Two things I want to make, two observations I will make. If you're set up tight and you feel like you're tight and in the right location, it's a game of chance. But if if you put everything in your odds on that deer and you know you have, have confidence in that stand and keep after him. He, when he returns, if you're set up correctly, he will come to your stand. But he may not be there at the time. You may hear of him getting killed four or five miles away, as some people do, a deer they was hunting, and that's what happened. He got killed in the other home range. Another observation is, I believe the the, the, the old doe cats they're falling out. It's by nature they say it's inbreeding. I'm still of an hour about some of that, but if it if that's the case and it looks to me like it is, if you shoot the doe, say you've got a doe comes under you with two button bucks, and it's legal and you harvest her, both of those button bucks will probably remain in that home range all their life, and they will be much easier to kill. I, I've Hunted several bucks. Most of them had two home ranges. One particular I know did not. And that year I harvested those pretty heavily, and I think I had killed that button buck's mother when it was in the fall when it was young. So that's two observations on that. Do you, you fellas got any comments or questions about that? For <laughs> us? I, my sure.
1: mind's blown, man.
0: That's so all, would, like
1: that is so good. Like, never
0: thought of that.
1: Never thought of it. Yeah,
0: no. But it it makes it makes. <laughs> total sense oh my goodness
1: so that that is something especially for guys who are um who are hunting some private land even like when you can really start to take start keeping tabs on deer um i i have often seen where i've killed a buck or killed a doe that had fawns where you you know if you kill the doe the fawns will stick around there um, and if you can start really keeping tabs on those deer, say you do harvest a doe with fawns, you start keeping tabs on those deer, um, that, that makes total sense to me. I would be interested to know, um, I would be interested to know, I know you said that's an observation and you had seen some stuff that had recently come out that kind of agreed with that observation. I would be interested to know more about that, I think. I, I'm. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't I don't. I don't know. Like I don't even know where to go from there. Like
0: that is so yeah. good, Mr. Bobby. Um, what, what, one of the questions that that I had was when you're when you're talking about the two ranges, are you talking about one being a rut range or are you talking about a deer having a birth range where they were born at and then they have their adult range or, or is there a rut range too? Does that make sense? Well,
2: that's what forms the two home ranges: the birth range where it was born and spent spent a year or so of its life and then it got it dissipated got cast out mm-hmm. and and then it went to an, what you could call an adult home range i call it a secondary home range mm-hmm. and then as that buck gets mature and that old doe that cast it out is no longer a uh, issue and and maybe maybe because of a lack of does or even hunting pressure or a, maybe a more mature buck moves in and that deer will take off and he'll he'll go He'll go back to the home range that he knows where it was imprinted in his mind. He usually don't do that right off. I think he's three or four years old before he does that. Okay. And then he will start moving back and forth. He can move back and forth because of availability of does or hunting pressure. Okay. All right. He's got a place to go when that happens. As a matter of fact, two or three instances I've heard of friends of mine killing bucks and them traveling in a straight line three or four miles before they die in a straight line. And then huh. maybe shot in intestines or something bed down and die and i believe they went to their other home range because that shot spooked them and they died and they didn't circle they didn't they didn't travel around in their home range which is generally a three-quarter of mile by mile they went straight to the other home range and and they died there and i know you all read or heard stories about a big buck with a certain rat, rat characteristic being killed mm-hmm. three or four miles five miles from where the guy noted he had seen him or got his picture that deer, that deer was either killed on the travel corridor between the home ranges or in in its secondary home range, and and I've seen them. I've seen them spend the summer in one home range and go for the rut in the other one. Probably the availability of does does that, or hunting pressure, and, and vice versa. But I also had one buck that I had a friend of mine that could keep tabs on him for me. He's seen him in clear cut a lot, at about four miles from my house, and that deer moved back and forth. The longest he was gone was about a month. In the winter, but he would move. Sometimes, within a couple of nights, he would move back and forth. So it depends a lot on things that we can't understand, not being that particular deer, and maybe another deer couldn't even understand what it was causing.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is good. That's good stuff. So okay. I, I really don't have like that kind of just blows. meat potatoes, man. Yeah, that let's just let's, kind of go blows for my mind. let's just keep going, man. So you you talked about. Well, let me- Go ahead.
2: Well, let me say, the most difficult things for most inspiring bow hunters is to understand what's important and what's not important. Most most do not. Most waste all their time uh, dealing with, worrying about, working on, and buying things that will not will not help them one one bit. And that's why they end up at the end of the year frustrated, like they have so many so many other years. There are things that we do not know in life, and there are things that we realize we do not know. The difference in these two things is really profound and broad in scope, and they really affect all the avenues of our life. Over the years, it's become apparent that the most difficult thing for inspiring trophy bow hunters is to understand what is significant to their success and what is not. Uh, a lot of hunters exert tremendous energy working working on stuff like I said that really really don't matter. Uh, let me uh, give you an analogy. In, in, I, I coach a lot of archery and I shoot in a lot of different ranges, and in nearly every range I attend, there's individuals. In nearly every range, they they'll shoot they'll shoot arrows for a little while, and then they'll walk over to the paper rack and and, uh, bolt and paper tune the bow. They'll shoot holes through paper. And then they'll start turning screws on their bow. They will repeat this over and over during the day if you watch them. And this they do in an attempt to improve their shooting by adjusting their bow. And it's obvious to me from watching most of these individuals that they have no idea how to execute a proper shot, make adjustments on their bow or adding new gimmicks to their bow or buying a a better, more advanced bow will not help them one iota. It it won't help them a bit. And most of these individuals really, they, they don't honestly know why their skill level is not where they would like it to be. The first thing they would have to do to improve their skill is learn to execute the shot. And this takes time and effort and it also takes knowledge of, of of what they're missing uh most same way most trophy deer hunters they're they're i say they're majoring in minor things and minor in, in major things there is minor things that will once you have the major things once you learn to execute a little adjustment or, or adding something different might help but until you know how to execute shot or until you know how to kill a trophy buck, then all these little gimmicks people throw in the mix is is nothing but cosmetic is the way I look at it. They're really missing the big picture. So, most of the questions I get about how to kill a big buck would be like a person uh, who wanted to take up archery. Let's say hired me for an archery coach and before their first lesson, they decided to go out and, and, and buy some equipment and then the first question when on the phone to me was, "What color of fletching should I put on my arrows?" Well, that's not really important in the big scheme of how to execute a shot. You know, I can take a I can take the cheapest bow on the market and, and the arrows with no fletching and show you how to execute. I can just really show you how to execute with a, a rubber stretch band with a, with a, without a bow. <laughs> I often life, It reminds me years ago. That is a wonderful show. I guess you guys have seen it some called Married with Children. <laughs> I played probably the greatest, show, the greatest show ever been on TV. I remember one time Al told Peggy not long after computers come out that they was going to get a computer, and 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 his big red-headed wife got all excited and said, "Oh, Al, that is so wonderful. What color?" <laughs> it's it, it's a, it's, a, it's about the same thing. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: And I've I've found that to be true with a lot of deer hunting stuff, man. Like a a lot of people are asking so many questions and they're wondering why they're not getting on deer. They're wondering why they're not being able to even see deer, let alone execute the shot. But that's the same people who are constantly learning, who are constantly not learning how to actually hunt and more concerned with the gear that they're using for sure
2: right they're they're not concerned about the only one thing that will help them uh, most bull hunters that most bull hunters interested in shooting buck are chasing rabbits down empty rabbit holes and it's because they have no idea what an occupied rabbit hole looks like this is really it's in a big part to the commercialization of deer hunting a lot of individuals get their information about how to kill a trophy buck from writers or from tv or internet stars and i say stars in parentheses whose livelihood depends on promoting techniques that are supported by products and uh, the sad truth is most of these products are gimmicks they they don't have one bit of bearing on on your ability to kill mature bucks What most individuals and even so-called experts are missing is the one important thing that will help you in any endeavor, and that's knowledge. There is only one way to improve your skill or to develop a skill in the first place, whether it's bow hunting trophy bucks or in any other endeavor, and that is to acquire new, more advanced knowledge than you already possess. This new knowledge must then be developed into skill once it's acquired and knowledge can only be turned into skill one way. And that is through effort. Uh, I've often said, and sometimes me and others coaches put this on a bulletin board, without effort, something awful takes person takes place in a person's life, nothing. And so you have to first acquire the knowledge and then you cannot be lazy with that knowledge or, it is useless. You have to develop that knowledge into skill. But the bad thing uh, thing you got to realize is it's hard to promote and sell knowledge, which is the only thing that really increases your success. Most most of the personalities who promote gimmicks are, are hunting on large private pieces of ground or other that have unpressured deer are really you'd be surprised at the number of them that hunt in confinements in pens and uh, you can you can kill subtrophy deer 150 inch deer in, in pens very cheap now and a lot of the not all of them but a lot of the tv and internet personalities are doing this so can they they can showcase their product and it's just to make money for themselves but i think there's sort of this prostitution of of hunting is that a lot of hunters are, are don't understand what's important and what's not they think buying more bow, buying different tree stands uh, will increase their chances of success uh, and they they'll get on the internet and they'll do this and then they'll get on the internet and 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 until late at night talk to other so-called trophy hunters about uh say what constitutes a staging area or, or or which side of the tree is best to hang your stand on, and and so forth. None of that amounts to a hill of beans, really. That's like a turning screws in bow. If you don't know how to execute the shot, a bow tuning uh, is not going to help you one bit. Uh, and at the end of the season, they realize that once again, they did not shoot a trophy, just like uh, in so many previous seasons. And why is this the case? They have really no idea. Why they didn't? Other than maybe they think they didn't spend enough money or buy the right, right product, but yeah. that's not the case at all. Uh, they don't have a trophy in the, the. The bottom line is they 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 never put a trophy on their wall that season because one never stepped in front of it. They have every pl- thing in place. They know all the correct language and lingo, and they got the best bow, and they they got they're ready for a nice picture, but. They've spent way too much time working on and studying things that don't mount the hill of beans, and if they ever do kill a once-in-a-lifetime buck, it will truly be that, a once-in-a-lifetime buck, because it will solely be by luck. If a person kills a material buck by luck, it cannot be repeated. However, if, he kills, if an individual shoots one on purpose, then he can do it again and again. That's why I said that probably 5% of the trophy hunters or 10% kill 90% of the the big bucks, because because we have figured it out. Uh, like I said before, bow hunting trophy whitetails is a game of chance. The good news is there is ways to put the chance in in our favor and increase our odds. Ultimately, there's just one challenge in trophy hunting mature bucks. The challenge is to find ways to increase your chances that a mature buck will walk within bow range of you during legal shooting hours. Now the shooting part's important. You don't want that to happen too many times, and you miss. But the shooting part, uh, to me, is cosmetic because if you don't get the buck in front of you, you, you can't kill it anyway. And there's there's smaller things controlling your nerves and learning how to win the draw and all that. But that's all cosmetic because most people's got all that ready to go, but they they just can't get they just can't kill them because they can't get them there. Well. Fellas, there's, there's three elements that over the years I have learned that there's only three things that really matter. All the TV shows and Internet chat and books ever written on bow hunting trophy whitetail don't mount to nothing if these three elements are not adhered to. That everything else is just it's just cosmetic. Now, these elements don't have the fascination or the uh, intrigue maybe as certain things that you want to talk about like signpost rubs and uh, a lot of things about uh, the different scents deer puts in the scrape and uh, uh, a lot lot of stuff that's intriguing biological stuff to know about a deer i guess but these three simple elements are truly all that matters and if you if you adhere to them then each one of them will increase your chances of success and let me, uh, let me outline them here. They're hunting during the rut, that's number one. Hunt a mature buck during the rut, and not before the rut, and I will explain why. Number two is stand placement. There is one tree in the woods that your target buck or more mature bucks will walk past than any other tree. And it's your job to find that tree, and it can be found, and I will mention a few things on that. And the next is persistence, which is the amount of time you stand, you, you're in that stand. And I will have to say that persistent, persistence, is the most important of the three. And I'll cover a few points on that these these three elements all accomplish the same thing that is they increase your odds your chances that a mature buck or your target buck whatever this situation may be will walk by your stand with it in bow range let me show you how that is uh if you're hunting outside the rut and you've got let's say uh, i'm just ad- i'm just thinking of something here off my head but say you've got a mature buck in your hunting area and you're hunting outside the rut say you're hunting first uh October 20th, during that time, he might be on his feet and walk through your hunting property one time. So if you're there for those 20 days, he might walk through your hunting property one time. Now, if you're not set up under the right tree, he won't come by you during that time. If you hunt half that time, you'll be there, chances are half that you'll be there when he is. So that's one way. Now, stand placement. If you're hunting in a location where this buck walks through three quarters of its time say it's a tight funnel and there is three or four corridors or deer trails that are forced because of a ditch or a body of water forced to go around this particular spotting come under your stand then let's say four corridors then you increase your odds four times that that will happen that a mature buck will walk by you So if you're hunting deer in the rut, you're going to increase it 20 times. One day out of 20, if you're hunting in a tight funnel where four corridors come by, you're going to increase it four times dramatically than you would otherwise. And the next thing is persistence. If you're only hunting one day out of the 20, compared to 20 days out of the 20, you have increased your chances again 20 times. So all three of these do the same exact thing. They increase your odds that a mature buck will walk in front of you. So, I can elaborate a little bit on all three if you would like me to.
1: Absolutely. Yes,
2: please. The first of these key points that I mentioned is hunting during the rut, and I want to point out the significance of that. Let me start out by relating to you a conversation I had a few years back. I was experiencing some knee pain one October, two or three years ago, so I went to see my doctor who was is supposed to know something about knees and he had a female intern doctor working with him and she's the one that come in there and seen me and it was obvious from her accent, she was from somewhere up the east coast and uh, she said to me we'll need to do x-rays on your knee bobby uh, i i hope you don't have to have surgery but from an examination alone i cannot be sure And uh, I answered, well, if we, if we do have to have, if I do have to have surgery and I have to wait to after the rut, we in mind that it was already the first week of October. And she said, sure. Then she paused a minute and she looked at me over her glasses and asked, what is a rut? (laughs) And I said, ma'am, that's the white-tailed deer breeding season. Oh, Of course, she said. She said, I should have known that. And then she got to fidgeting around there with paperwork and and just fidgeting around and in a kind of a daze. And and the question that was growing in her mind got the best of her. And she blurted out, And you're involved in that, how, sir? (laughs) 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 So. I now know for sure I am correct in my assumption that there is still some people who do not understand the significance of hunting deer in the rut. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, she was one of them. Uh, let's let's define the term rut for for what I, me and when I use it in in the terminology. I'm referring to a 25 day period of time during the late pre-rut and and through the breeding season this time frame i call the rut movement period or i'll refer to it short as the rut and as you probably realize when dealing with mammals that are short day breeders in temperate regions the timing of this period will vary depending on your location uh, this rut movement play period i think y'all are in where you are, Texas?
1: Uh Alabama.
2: Alabama. Well this, this rut moment period will take place at the same time basically every year where you live. Now it may be more visible the color of the temperature. Mm-hmm. The time and primes deal, but the cold temperatures is what I watch for when I decide when to when to take them a stand, but I'm not going to get off track too far here. Uh and the reason that it, it it stays the same wherever you're at. is is because the 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 environmental condition that primes deer to breed for the rut is photoperiodism, which is the amount of daylight in a 24 hour period of time. So it enters the pened land and and primes the, the deer for the breeding season. And this is through environment. You can you can transplant a deer from my region to your region, and uh, the first year or two he may they may come in. Rud and breed at the time that is normal for up here. But over time, because of environment, of course uh, evolution, not Darwin's theory of evolution, but the true sense of adaptivity to your environment, because of that and them needing to adapt the fawn birth for the greatest time of survival, it will be heat off photoperiodism. that their makeup, their biological makeup will learn when that is for best fawn survival. Now, where I live in southeastern Tennessee is just north of the 35th latitude, Uh, actually just about the southern part of Tennessee upward is the 35th latitude up to the Canadian border, say. And the timing of the rut all through the Midwest is about the same at this place. And... and. uh, Anywhere you anywhere you live and hunt, you need to find out where that is. And most avid hunters know when when the rut takes place for their location. But there's a period of about twenty five days, and in my area, through the Midwest up to Canada, it it begins about October twenty fifth. Uh, now, if it's the Other than the exception of one buck, which I will discuss later, October 25th is the date that I killed. I've only killed, starting at that date, I've only killed material bucks from that date forward, as far as being pulled by the rut. Now, there's a few exceptions to that that I will talk about. But only, I'll start hunting material bucks if I've got a big buck pinpointed and a buck I want to shoot. I will start hunting him October 25th or later, depending on the temperature. Daylight temperature is more important than most people realize. If it's unseasonably warm, October 25th through the 1st of November, I will stay out of his core area. He will still be coming through. If I've got him pinpointed and got the tree pinpointed, he'll be coming through, but it will be at night. And if I get in there when he is still coming through at night, if it's unseasonably warm, I will educate him. It won't be no difference than me having him pinpointed, but starting hunting in the middle of October when he is nocturnal until the rut, which 90% of them are. So when I say October twenty fifth forward is when I, the rut movement period, when I will hunt a mature buck, I am talking about only if the temperature is seasonable or below. If it's unseasonably warm, I still will not hunt them at that early date. Now I realize that there are a lot of hunters hunting special situations uh we see it on tv they've got huge tracts of unpressured ground they don't go into the woods at all and bother the deer and those deer are not what i call natural deer that's been pursued by the human predator most places i hunt public ground or pressured private ground like most individuals that's probably going to listen to this podcast so that is the situation i'm governing are hunting toward because because most of us now i'm not saying a thing in the world about the people that's worked hard and uh, been able to buy and, and purchase these large pieces of ground or has unique situations. Hunt. I'm, I'm tickled to death for them and I'm happy for them, but most of us just, just don't have that situation available to us. And as I said before, a, a lot of people now are, are hunting shows or are killing deer that's that's on in pens and, and that, that particular pen may not have been pressured all year and they're feeding the deer in a certain place and you can kill them outside the rut in daylight hours. And and every now and then, we'll we'll find a buck that we can do that with. Just there is a few bucks that has a personality trait to move during daylight outside the rut in my area, in everybody's area, and on public ground. I think talent talent is a, a trait that's passed down. from one generation to another, and after bucks learn the danger of the human predator in, in pressured areas, they they start traveling at night. They pass that trait down. Well, there's a few bucks that just uh, is just governed by personality to move outside the rut uh, during daylight. Those bucks generally get killed by the time they're one and a half or two and a half, and at the most three and a half years old. That is why it is really important if you can, and if you get an opportunity to hunt a ground, say public ground or private ground that's never been open before for hunting, if you can get in there and hunt that, you will have a gold mine because there will be a goodly number, a few bucks that has reached six and a half or seven and a half year olds that, that has not been hunted all their life, and they have that trait to move outside the rut during daylight. I've only killed one before october 25th and it was a big deer named rattlesnake that uh, i killed at seven and a half years old and from the time the deer was two and a half on i noticed he had this trait when he was four and a half years old a week and a half or two weeks after he said his velvet i got plenty of pictures of him during the daylight now when they're still in velvet all of them will be out in the feeding fields no matter how old and how nocturnal they'll be out in the field i'm not talking about I'm not talking about a lot of them will be out in the fields during daylight, uh, during that time in food plots. But once they shed that velvet, they become an animal, a different creature. And then is when you have to be concerned about hunting them. And by then, most of them turn nocturnal until the rut. So I wanted to, I wanted to clarify uh, a few, a few things about that. Okay, so... The general deer population, that's does and fawns and young bucks are diurnal in their movements. And and the older they, the bucks get, the more nocturnal they become outside the rut. Uh, when I say diurnal, they, they, they're they're dust movers. They move uh, at daylight in dust. And because we hunt does uh, before the rut and maybe kill harvested for, for meat and because a lot of people start out hunting does, then they get used to seeing deer bed down, being diurnal, and then bend down about nine or 10 o'clock. And that preconditions us to think that deer, even during the rut, don't move in the middle of the day. And it preconditions us to believe that any time during the year, during October, we'll say we can kill a mature buck uh, outside the rut. And that's just, that's just not the case. Uh, in a moderately to heavy, Heavy hunted area uh, deer that do possess that trait are killed by the time they're three and a half. So very few of us. Uh, just so happened that one deer I was I was keeping tabs of didn't make it to seven and a half. But and that was uh, some other people hunting the area. But he through luck and just his uh, uh, intelligence and ability, he was able to elude them and get by. But I killed him on October first, and he was seven and a half years old. So that's that's every now and then. that will happen but you should never blind hunt a mature buck outside the rut never now when I say blind hunt I mean if you like me get pictures of him or happen to see him a couple of times outside the rut then you know that that deer is one of those rare creatures that has that trait and you can try to figure him out and hunt him outside the rut but I'm telling you if he's not been pulled by that rut urge he is an animal of extreme cunning and he It would be amazing if he don't detect your presence or 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 outwits you even when you get him coming in close so i just wanted to make that comment before i uh, press so much this issue of not hunting a mature buck until the rut even one that is occasionally moving during daylight outside the rut in my opinion your chances are much better if you wait to october twenty fifth. uh if it's seasonally cooler cooler and or later on in my area of course that's uh, but now you can apply that to where you hunt also but the thing about the rut is uh, because most mature bucks are nocturnal it takes something out of the ordinary to get them on their feet during daylight hours other than forced movement the only thing that i can think of and the the most uh obvious thing is the rut and during the rut it is my belief that all mature bucks and older age slash bucks will be on their feet at one point or another during the breeding season. Uh, that's just the nature of the game. Uh, the the urge to reprocreate is is so strong that that's that's just going to and been my observation That it's just always been the case. But let me say this. Not only is it less productive, you are just kind of wasting your time hunting mature bucks before the rut movement. Hunting a mature buck during this time of season, say uh once season opens down to October twenty fifth and that's north of the parallel that's the thirty fifth parallel line, it will destroy your chances to kill one. I believe this is one of the major reasons a lot of people do not kill a mature buck and they absolutely have no idea why. They literally run that buck off before he's moving during daylight. They're setting up on big sign. Uh, and, and, and they're hunting. Uh, let me just, uh, let me illustrate how the average deer hunter hunts and, and why his action diminishes his chance of shooting a mature buck. Most bow hunters will start hunting on opening day, which is usually the last week of September or the first week of October. And he'll hunt every chance he gets early in the season because, you know, the anticipation has been building and he just, he's like all of us with this urge. He just, he just wants to go hunting. And a week or two into October, uh, the guy set up in a good place. He knows what he's doing and large book sign will start showing up around the hunter stand or, or on his route to the stand. And these larger rubs and straights will really get the hunter excited. He'll hunt even harder and he'll spend every free minute he has in the woods because he's wanting to kill this monster buck that's making the big sign. Well, after a few days of hunting and not seeing the big buck that's tearing the woods up, he'll begin to get frustrated. This is when the average deer hunter will usually start scouting again. He'll walk the woods out to make sure he's set up in the right location. And then he'll continue to hunt his previous stand or maybe he'll hunt another stand on some more big sign two or three hundred yards down the same bucks travel corridor the diff- typical deer hunter i tell you what he'll also do he'll also shoot a young buck or a doe or two because he's getting frustrated now It's say the th- third week of october and and he's not seeing the big buck that's tearing the woods up and he's getting frustrated so he don't he don't want to go through the season without shooting something he'll shoot a doe or two from eight or maybe a younger buck and of course that'll require him dragging out of the woods and walking through the woods some more and and uh, leaving more human scent in the woods. And a lot of times he'll even solicit the help of a friend or a hunting partner who may be hunting the same buck a quarter mile away to have him drag the deer he shot out. And by the third or fourth week of October, the hunter is really discouraged. Not only is he not seeing that big buck and he knows he's in the area, uh, all deer sign. He's seeing fewer and fewer deer of any kind and, and fewer deer, deer sign of any kind. But I want to ask you, is it any wonder that this is the case? He has left enough scent in the area and disturbed the general deer population and disturbed the ground so much that the one-and-a-half-year-old deers are going the place. And at this time, the most deer hunters will get so discouraged enough they'll either quit hunting or, or quit hunting that spot and start hunting a new location. And they may have had a 180 inch buck pinpointed well i'm telling you fellas hunting in this manner the typical deer hunter has never killed a mature buck and and never will unless it's purely by luck and why is he not successful hunting in this manner it's because his target buck become aware that he was being stalked and he has literally educated that buck to the fact that you're after his hide and he has destroyed his chances of killing him. And there's many ways that hunting a buck too early like this, a mature buck that's nocturnal, uh, there's many ways that 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 you can that you can destroy your chances. And let me let me go about five reasons here, and we can learn something from each one of these. Well, of course, during the night, that mature bucks keep a close check on what's taking place in the different family groups of does in their home range so they're traveling around at night and they're they're making big rubs and straights uh, during these locations and on the travel door corridors between them uh, during this time and in either or both of these locations is where the typical deer hunter encounters this sign and, and he's hunting and he's getting excited about it And during the night, the the old buck that was tying the woods up is coming through, and every few nights he passes through that area and he encounters fresh human scent because the hunter was coming in and out of a stand and, and, and walking around scouting some more. And, and every few nights he encounters fresh human scent. And after two or three such encounters, you, we don't have to go past number one of my five points, but after two or three, such encounters, that mature buck has wrote that off as a dangerous situation because he knows the human predator is after him. No respectable buck would keep going into that area after, after encountering fresh human scent two or three times. Now, I'm gonna chase a rabbit hole just a sideline here to point this out even more. Every now and then, I'll have a situation where I have to scout during the season. It, it just seems to rise every year but most of my scouting is done the year or three years before and i'm keeping tabs on the buck and uh, uh the year before but every now and then i'll be asked to hunt a new area or a new place to open up and i'll have a situation to scout in the season or very close to season and fellas i will not go in but one time when i go into an area that local deer herd and the mature bucks if there's any in that particular location they'll ease out they'll accept that they encounter people all the time squirrel hunters uh Coon hunters, mushroom hunters, uh, hikers—they'll accept that. They'll move out. They'll come in back at night after you leave, and they'll smell around and track you around and figure out where you spent most of the time, and try to figure out what was going on there. And Of course, they—they they don't think like us, so they don't—they don't really know. But they're—they're they're very aware that it could be a predator, a human predator. Well, a lot of people will go in and scout like that, and they'll find good sign and, and and maybe want to walk it some more the next day, or or at least go back they're tired it's late and they'll go out that night and and then they'll come back the next day and hang their stance well the next time they go in the next day they push those deer back out again and 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 now that's 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 too much that's alarming that's no longer a squirrel hunter walking through or a hiker or a coon hunter when they push them out a second day two days in a row or maybe the next day or or two days apart when the same and they come back in and it's the same human sin in the same location that is alarming to a deer, very alarming to a mature buck. They don't get to be mature but being stupid, and most people underestimate them and don't know what it takes to kill one. That's why they don't. But when I go in and scout a new area, if it's close to season or during the season, I will, I will leave no rock unturned. I will walk at daylight to dark, and I don't care if it's after dark. I will go out and get my stands and bring them back in. I do not want to push the deer out two days in a row or the next day, and I don't want to disturb them, but one time. They will accept that, but no more. Okay, having having said that, let me let me move forward to the second reason, the second way a mature buck gets tipped off uh, that you're that you're hunting a certain area because you're hunting too early. You're not waiting until he actually is moving during daylight and sneaking around and set up. And it's the first time or second time that stand's been hunted. You're You're, you're hunting him constantly too early because you found the big sign and you've got excited about. But the buck's nocturnal. Uh, That buck may be tipped off by an old doe that has become aware of the location of your stand. I know you guys have, and I have many times watched uh, a doe come down the corridor I'm hunting and become aware of my presence. Maybe I moved at the wrong time or the wind shifted or something, and, and she may have five or six does behind her, and she will communicate through body language she won't, not blowing and running yet but she'll do something that I maybe i don't even notice but she'll communicate to the deer behind her that there's danger up her head there's a human predator and they'll all stop and then one of them start stomping their foot. but, and, but no, before you know it they blow and run off uh it's my opinion and i think i've seen stuff that's indicated this that that old doe that's found you in that stand don't only tilt deer off right think to your presence, particularly if she has done it a couple of days in a row or, or a couple of days in a week. It's my opinion that anytime during the nightly visits, she's in that area or that location and she's with other deer, she will let them know through body language that, Hey, we're not going through this corridor. We're not going down this patch of woods because there's danger in there. And before you know it, every, every doe and every deer in the woods become aware of your presence, even and, and even the old mature bucks that was in the area at the time. Well, that's that's the second way that a mature buck can be tipped off because you've hunted him too early in the year. And the third way is, by using his nose, a mature buck will... Will discover that the deer traveling through a corridor reaches a certain point, and he makes a deer. They make a detour, which is not normal. They did this because, of course, because uh, they were spooked by you, or or by the airborne scent they smelled you, or by the scent you left behind walking in and out. They've they've learned that the human predators in the woods, and that's why you're seeing fewer deer. Well, this old buck is coming down the same corridor, and he knows the family group of does there just like he comes through there all the time at night, every few days. And he knows them just like you know your own family's movements. And if your family all of a sudden started avoiding a certain place, you would know it. Well, through his nose, he's following the family group of does in, in a normal pattern. And all of a sudden, he's walking further, and there's no doe scent. He smells the ground. No deer scent at all. He's, he circles, smells a wider area, and no deer scent at all. I believe that buck knows and has learned through experience that those does have deterred their normal mo- movement and are moving around a certain place because there's danger there. So he'll start avoiding the area, of course, uh, just like he would if he found two or three different times of your scent. He's going to stop avoiding that area. So that's that's another way. After two or three nights of detecting uh, danger for whatever reason, uh, he's going to stay away. And, and he just—he's—he's he's a survival—he's a—he's an ultimate survival machine. He just—he's just not going to make a stupid mistake like that after 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 such encounters. Uh, he may relocate to a faraway place, but for sure he's going to avoid going through that location. And the fourth way a mature buck may be tipped off. Uh, that you're hunting a certain area that he normally likes to go through, it's on his travel corridor, it's it's a good place to kill him, but you're hunting him too early in the year, is that he may be bed in the half mile, or he may be bed at three quarters of a mile away from a certain ridge or a funnel you're hunting. And as your hunt continues, you occasionally spook deer, does, young bucks, whatever, going to and fro of your stand and of course, those deer leave quickly, and they give that familiar warning. They blow, and, and then that's just like a hunter sitting half a mile when somebody else hunting, and you, two or three days in a row, you hear deer blowing on a certain ridge. Well, you know somebody's hunting up there, hmm. and and the young bucks and does become aware kind of your present. Maybe they catch you in a tree standing, blow. Maybe they, they blow when you're going in and out. Well, the, the material buck that's bedded in here of in that location, I'm I'm telling you, he is going to wrap that off i'm no longer going through there he's left signed there he's he, it's a good place for him but he is he's no longer going through there i'm hoping through these situations you can begin to see why many uh, of y'all and my readers my listeners are, are failing in their attempt to kill a material buck uh they're hunting too early in the season they they, they get excited and they do not use restraint well the fifth reason uh, a lot of people don't they they tip off a material buck and, and don't kill him but the fifth reason hunting too early in the season can cost you that is even if your target buck does not suspect danger he will not hang around a place long in the fall where there is no or few does because the Hunter has spooked them all out of location. You can't hunt a place a week in a row unless you use extreme stealth. And there's very few hunters that can hunt a place a week in a row without the family group of does becoming aware of your presence. That's why it's much easier to hunt a place that has very few does because once they do become aware of your presence, as I stated before, there's many ways that they can tip off a material buck will also become aware. Of. But anyway, once the family group of does become aware of your presence, and they vacate the location. That buck will come through at night. Even if he don't go right through your corridor and detect your or where you've been or understand some of the other reasons, that mature buck will come through at night and he's feeding on acres and he's walking around but he knows the rut's coming up and he's trying to keep a check of this family group of does and find out where they're located most often and where they're using. And he, he don't find any. If you're looking for a date and go to a bar or, or event, where there are none or very few of the opposite sex, you're not going to stay there long, <laughs> and true. you probably won't return at least for a good while. So, you'll probably <laughs> keep scouting around until you find a place where there is a lot of the opposite sex uh, attended. Yeah. So, if you overhunt a place, and if you, if you're in there before the before the buck is is pulled into daylight by the rut movement period and you're spooking the local does and they're no longer going on that ridge or going through that area and a mature buck comes through at night a time or two and there's no does he's going to write that off as just a low chances of success of what he's trying to achieve and and and, and when he finds an area over here where they move to that they got a lot more does then that's where he's going to spend his time well as you can see from I hope what I've said, uh, it makes matters to begin with. It decreases your chances so much that you just as well in a heavily hunted or modern hunted area or public ground, it decreases your chance so much that it's just about not worth it anyway hunting a mature buck outside the rut. And not only does it decrease your chances, it says the damage you will do would literally in any one of these five ways run that mature buck off or make him look for places elsewhere to go so i hope this point of hunting the rut number one and and why it's so important to stay out of the woods until the rut movement pulls him i hope i have been able to point that out to you and and your listeners fellas
1: yeah that's absolutely like so much detail in that i did have i did have a couple of questions and i'll ask them all together because they're kind of related. but number one, could you tell me what your definition, age-wise, is of a mature buck? And also, with that, can you also tell me, like, um, is there any scenario outside of weather where you will even be in the woods before that time period? I know you said that the the weather largely affects, um, or the the cold weather largely largely affects. Um, that October 25th date do you just not hunt period or do you go out and maybe try to get lucky on some spots that maybe you know you don't have a buck targeted um, so yeah age for mature buck and is there a scenario where you do hunt early season
2: well getting lucky hunting a mature buck early in the season hoping to get lucky in a buck maybe I hadn't targeted just hoping to get lucky on a mature buck is 100% out of the question because of the five reasons I have just brought up. All you're going to do is educate him. If you have him up on some sign and just think, well, I don't know this particular deer. And since it ain't over there where I want to hunt another one, I'm going to go ahead and give him a try. Well, that's that's a major mistake just as much as it would be if it was the the buck you had targeted. I hunt outside the rut on edge of fields and stuff in a particular place outside of, away from where I want to hunt a mature bug just to kill does. And and enjoy hunting and shoot those for me. Of course, I, I do that. And as far as buck age, I try not to shoot a buck until he's five and a half. But now I know the bucks I'm hunting. That's what I'm kind of known for in my articles and stuff is is targeting a particular buck. And you'd be amazed at the bucks I have watched grow up through the years that become five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half in Tennessee and never reach trophy status for me, uh, One fifty. Uh, deer in 116 sometimes uh, in Tennessee the average four and a half or five and a half year old eight point would not get out of the low 140s and a 10 point even out of the 150s it takes an exceptional buck and I have watched a literally a ton of deer grow to trophies age and never develop into what I wanted to shoot uh, very few bucks in Tennessee that I've followed and watched grow up did i kill and once they get five and a half if they're not what i want i, I move on looking at something else and maybe maybe watching two or three other bucks so five and a half for me now a lot of people will go ahead and shoot a five and a half year old knowing he's a five and a half year old but i'm i'm just fascinated by a lot of horn and if he's in the 140s i'm just uh, i'm just i'll put my efforts elsewhere uh, a lot of people caught three and a half year olds mature because that's all they can kill a lot of the mature bucks that you see killed on to TV that are call bucks are actually two and a half year old, sometimes one and a half, or sometimes three and a half. Uh, they just have to you know, make shows and promote products. So they'll say that that's a, that's an old buck. It's just a call buck and he really ain't old enough to be material and have a, have a good racks. Usually the case, I love shooting six and a half and seven and a half year old bucks, but sometimes I'll shoot them at five and a half, but hardly ever, hardly ever before that.
1: Okay. And, and do you, when you, when you go out and you target uh, specific bucks and, and you're obviously planning to kill them during the rut or during that time, time period, what would you say is like an average number of bucks that you're chasing each season? Do you, like, do you say, I'm just going to target this one buck and that's it? Or do you have multiple areas where you have multiple target bucks per season?
2: I will only target one buck. Now, if something happens to him, and I think I only want to shoot one buck a year, and I've got that buck in mind, I'll put my time and effort there. But if I know that he has a second home range, that he spends a lot of time doing the rut, and if he disappears, and I've got another one in a place that I can hunt, then I may move over to that one because – and I'll continue monitoring my cameras. Now, used to, I just use sign, uh, but I'll continue monitoring my cameras until he returns. But normally I just want to shoot one buck and I put all my effort in that. But fellas, don't get locked into a stand when that deer is not at home. You may be in the right stand in the right location, but he may be in his other home range and he's just not at home and you are really wasting your time there until he comes home. Of course, you may sit there a week, then he may pop up and you've got it. That's the best situation. If I don't have another material about to hunt I'm totally happy to take that chance yeah. and to wait on him so uh and and i I find his, uh, let me say this i I may have one in one property where his core area is and the core area consists of about a hundred and sixty acres or something or i may have I may have two in that on that one property that has a core area sometimes that's pretty rare because I don't have a lot of big properties to hunt. But let me let me tell you how I find their core area. It might be interesting, uh, just just as a, another rabbit hole we can go down here.
1: Yeah.
2: I on all the hunting properties I have available to me, I put mineral licks, and it's still legal in a lot of states. And I put mineral licks beside all the thickest cover on the properties. I don't care if it's a half a acre and a half or if it's ten acres. I'll put mineral licks beside the thickest, roughest cover on that particular property cause the most mature bucks will be in that inaccessible cover and I'll put mineral licks around every one of them. And then I'll put my cameras on them in late July. Now, when I get a picture of a mature buck on a mineral lick close to thick cover that time of year, I know for a fact that that buck lives there. That's his core area because in July, the rut is not pulled him and he would not be moving far. Now he may, he may relocate in his home range to a prime food source in April and May and feed there because they soybeans or something. But he will he will move back by July and August when that dries up. He will move back to his core area. And when I get a picture of a material buck in July, that buck is not probably traveling over uh 160 200 acres. I know. I know. I have found his core area. It's in that thicket that I have put the mineralite beside. I, I read an article years ago by a guy that said that when you find a big rub in late August or, or late September or early October when the first shed develops, it don't mean anything. He wants to see them big rubs in November. Well, I take subject with that. I I believe that it's right the opposite. When you find a big rub in November, that buck could be a mile and a half or five miles if it's in another quarry. But he could definitely be a, a mile, mile and a half from, from there in his in his home range. But if you find a big rub where right after they shed their velvet in uh, late September, early October, that buck is still in his core area, and that buck has not traveled far. And you have found you have found his core area just as you have when you get a picture of one in in July and August. So it's very important to find a core area and know where he lives. And, and, and then of course we'll start looking for funnels and uh, which is my next subject. we'll start looking for a tree to hunt in that core area. Has that raised any questions in your mind? And no, I
1: mean, I, I completely agree with you and uh, I've actually had that conversation quite a bit uh, pretty recently, just about finding core areas this time of the year when they're traveling a pretty good bit less than they will other times of the year um you know if if i if i go and i put a trail camera out right now uh and within a couple of weeks i don't have the pictures that i want i I maybe don't have the deer that i would like to see i'm probably going to move it for that reason because if it's not there in his core area then i'm just wasting my time this time of year if i don't have him in that amount of time because I just don't feel like they're traveling an ultra long distance right now. And so, you know, I, I just, if I'm not finding the sign or um, something like that, like I I just I just typically am not going to waste my time for that reason. So I think that that's, that's good to think about, you know, if you're finding the stuff that you're wanting to find right now this time of season, if you're finding those, you know, if you find a scrape that's open or a big rub and to me that makes perfect sense that you are in his core area this time of year is that is that basically what you're saying
2: that is that's exactly what i'm saying now that don't mean that you're going to kill him there during the rut that's not where i'm going to hunt him exactly. but it does if you lose a buck and lose his sign and he's not showing up his sign's not showing up in a tight funnel where you're hunting him it's always good to go back to his core area and start there and see if he's home or if he's perhaps in in another home range so yeah that's that's basically what I, I'm saying. And, and I will hunt a, now this thing about late October, people talk about rubs and straves I have wrote a lot of articles and stuff. I, I, I kind of, I'm one of the first hunters to start using straves and, 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 uh, really use them effectively. And I've, you can Google and find some articles I've wrote on strapes and, and rubs, but I make a lot of mock strafes, but people often ask me, will I talk about hunting early in the year? Uh, Will I hunt rubs and stripes. I will, and I've killed some good deer on lines and rubs, and they're basically the same thing. They're they're showing you they're showing you a travel corridor, and there's a purpose for them. But we won't get into all that; we don't have time. But the only time I will hunt the only time I'm hunting a straight, but ninety percent of the time it's going to be effective is from October twenty fifth, if it's unseasonably cool, till November first or second or third. That's a very People hunt scrapes a lot. They don't have much success, but they're hunting them before that period or after that period. When those bucks get pulled later than in in my area in the Midwest, later than October twenty fifth, when they get pulled into daylight, until the first wave of those come in about November third or fourth, there's a short, very short period of time there you can effectively hunt scrapes. Outside that, you're educating the deer and and wasting your time. But I thought I would throw that in too.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Here, especially in the South, man. I don't know if you've if you've noticed that the hunting scrapes in the South is, and I don't know if it if it would be so much for like the age class of deer that you're that you're referring to, versus you know the three three and a half, four and a half year old deer that most people would be okay with. But I have found for me that pretty much any time of the season, I don't I don't see a lot of deer on scrapes. Um, early season, if I hunt a scrape early season and I can find one that's close to bedding is typically the time when I'm going to see the most deer, but any other time I just don't typically see that, which makes a lot of sense hearing you talk because there's really only maybe a week right there, um, when it can be, you know, more effective. And if you're not hunting during that week, then sure, you're not going to. It may not be effective for you, like you said. You may just be educating. That's that kind of is what it sounds well, like he, you're saying.
2: Correct. He's still coming through uh, yeah. earlier in October, but it's night. And you have educated him to your location and the five reasons you've you've educated him when you're hunting anywhere. You've educated him, your, and by the time he would be moving in daylight, you run him off. Hmm. Yeah, that, that 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 is the fact. That that's that's why most people are not productive hunting straights or rub lines.
1: Oh man, I hate to cut you guys off right now because I know you're just getting into this, and it feels like we just started, and it's already uh, been so much good information. But I have to cut it off so that we can have part two, and uh, I think part two is going to get good. So let me know what you guys thought about uh, about Bobby Worthington even before you listen to the to the rest of it. Um, me personally, he could have stopped talking ten minutes into the into the conversation i would have feel like felt like i've learned a ton um so i'd love to hear you guys your guys feedback you can uh you can post it up on on facebook send me a private message on the southern ground facebook page or on instagram whether whatever you want to do that's uh, at southern ground hunting on both facebook and instagram you can find us again remember that we are giving away a tethered phantom all you got to do is subscribe on youtube i'm posting a ton of content right now on youtube it's older content getting it on the new channel so uh if you are looking for something to do right now while we're trying to get fired up for deer season go watch those i i hope they'll fire you up i really do um i know they fired me up so yeah that's gonna be it for this weekend you guys uh have a great weekend if you're gonna be out in the woods remember that god gave you dominion over the birds of the air the fish of the sea and the beasts of the earth so go out and exercise that dominion talk to you next time